This is the Great IO Get Together, originally recorded on YouTube Live. Although you can listen to the show as a podcast, you only get the full experience by visiting thegig.online/youtube. It's time for your viewing pleasure, the online show that will change how you think about online shows. Welcome to the Great I.O. Get-Together! On tonight's show, fun and excitement like you won't believe. The thrills, the chills. Now join me in welcoming your hosts and mine, Richard and Tara! Thank you so much, Pete. Welcome, uh, everyone, to the great IO get-together number three. My name is Richard. This is my co-host, Tara. What's up, Tara? How's it going? Not too much. Spring is sprung here. It's very exciting. I've got all these surprise daffodils that I didn't know were planted that have popped up all over the place. But uh, I have this problem. So there are these two geese that have moved into my backyard, and they're scaring away all the other birds, and they're really quite aggressive. So I was hoping you had some good goose deterrent suggestions. <laughs> goose deterrent suggestions is okay. yeah besides uh, a bb gun i should say that's not an acceptable suggestion so <laughs> something uh, other than bb gun maybe can you befriend them can you be friendly to <laughs> no I, you can only befriend crows as you know which i'm going to do definitely <laughs> maybe i could have the crows defend me against the geese i like where you're thinking this is good okay. yeah okay <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna leave the crow comment aside i don't even i don't i don't know <laughs> oh i'll tell you all about it another time it's, okay. it's one of my life goals maybe, maybe next time uh because sure. we gotta we gotta start the show and the crow talk is, is too much fine okay for those for those at home i'm sorry if you were hoping for crow talk but we'll, we'll have to put it aside for next time if you've never joined us before uh we record these gigs live as you can clearly tell uh, so that we can take your questions on the show. Uh, the live gigs are really just an excuse for our Discord community. Uh, you can chat there with your fellow IOs during the show or anytime that you want. You can find more details about that uh, on our website, thegig.online. Uh, all of our regular shows, this one is no exception, have two halves. In the first half, we have usually a little bit of fun, uh, maybe a little less fun today, we'll see. Uh, second half, we get a little bit more serious, uh, usually with an interview with our guest um, uh, or guests of the day, depending on what our show is. Uh, top of today's gig, uh, perhaps a little less fun, titled A Grad Student Lament, Tales from the Pandemic. Uh, about a month ago, we asked our uh, graduate student viewers to submit some stories and, and questions about their struggles during the pandemic. Um, we got some responses. Uh, it's it's some a little bit heavy stuff, as as we will see. Um, had some uh, you know authentic heartache reading some of these stories. Uh, clearly, been a, a pretty rough time uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but fortunately, I think that our guest today uh, might have some helpful recommendations given her expertise. In fact, our guest today is Dr. Allison Gabriel, Robbins Fellow and Associate Professor of Management and Organizations at the University of Arizona. Uh, Allie is a prominent occupational health researcher uh, who, in attempting to find her own pandemic work-life balance, ended up with two Pelotons, a bike two. and a treadmill. A two. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Allie. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I was I was one of those people where I used to make fun of Pelotons. They had that 
Christmas commercial back in like 2019, the woman who looked like her husband was making her ride the bike. And I was like, look at that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And now here we are. <laughs> and it's been like one thing to help me restore my sanity during this really, really crazy time. So, yeah, I, I'm glad I, to be here. Yeah, I seriously <laughs> thought about it. I actually thought about the, what is it? The, the mirror or the wall or whatever it's the called. Mirror. The they're like the mm -hmm. weightlifting one. Yeah, it scans oh, you. And there's like the tonal too. There's all tonal. these things Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, Which one of them has the celebrity coach? All Is that of them. Peloton? Isn't it? Peloton. Well, they they become <laughs> celebrities. It's like very interesting. <laughs> they have like agents yeah. and hair and makeup people and all of this. Um, but it's been, it's like all the interesting parts of gamification, right? They have like these challenges where you do like X number of workouts in a certain number of days. So it's been it's been fun and there's a community of io ob people that kind of ride together so that's been really fun too since we don't get to see each other in person well, well uh speaking of coping segue that uh brings yeah. up our, yeah. <laughs> our our topic for the show uh at the top here a little a little less fun perhaps than our, our last one uh we did we have these user submissions viewer submissions i should say uh from some grad students who have really been struggling so the plan here is to I'll just read them aloud. Uh, we'll we'll have a little chat, see what um, what advice we might be able to provide uh, to the extent that we we can avoid this being uh, you know a super depressed depressing show. I would love to do that, um, but uh, as as we will see, uh, some of the stories are are pretty deep in there. So let me let me get right into it. Uh, the first one. I'm gonna say this in my regular voice. That's a decision I just made. All right. It's been a really difficult time as a first-year student. I've really had to force my way into creating relationships, and nothing is organic. The second- and third-year students are also feeling burnout and don't make it a priority to connect with us. My own cohort rarely talks outside of class, and when we do, it's class-related. I barely know them. After five-plus months of trying to organize Zoom calls and get to know everyone better, I have given up. Luckily, I have found friends and support in students from another program, but I wish I had IO students to lean on. It's extremely hard to have work-life balance because I don't have any real plans to look forward to on the weekend, going to the gym or grabbing food or coffee. I have nothing to hold me accountable to get my work done other than deadlines. I wish I could go to campus, have some separation between where I do school and my home, uh, and be able to have things to look forward to for motivation. So there's awful lot of uh, uh, kind of work-life balance themes in there. What are, what are your thoughts about that, Allie? Yeah, well, I think this has been the hardest part, right? Like somebody who, like I study recovery, right? And I study how people recover when they go home after work. And I think the big thing we don't know right now is like, well, what is after work anymore? You know, my husband, Mike, and I, we have this conversation all the time of like, the work non-work boundaries just gone, right? And it doesn't exist and everything is so fluid. Um, and I think one thing that we've had to do, I've had to do, um, and I encourage my own students to do is like, you have to try to create some type of structure, right? And so if it's, you know, gosh, and you have to find what works for you too. I, I think that's the hardest thing, right, of being a graduate student is you want to listen and you want to be told like, this is what you have to do to feel good and maintain your well-being. But it's so idiosyncratic to each person and what they're going to value. So um, are there ways that you can structure your workday still so you can kind of clock in and clock out? Um, are there things available to you where you know you can't meet somebody for coffee and like we normally would in a coffee house, but can you go do a drive-through coffee, grab it, and meet somebody to sit outside at a distance? Um, that's something that I know our doctoral students here at Arizona, um, they've like met under under each other's patios with coffees at a distance to try to like build some of that rapport. 
Um, but I also wouldn't discredit like the, it sounds like this person has ties to students and other programs. I wouldn't discredit those ties, right? Like I, I think their, you know, support can come from anywhere. Yeah, it'd be awesome if you have people in-house in your own IO group that you can talk to, but you might get better support in some ways from people that are not in your world. So you can talk about things and, and other things are going to come up. Um, I know that's why I always like having like real world friends, right? Like people outside of academia where I can go and they talk to me about my day. And if I'm like, oh, I got a R&R &R rejected. They're like, that's a bummer. I'm sure you'll get the next one. And like, they <laughs> Like there's some of this, what did the review, like, review of T say? Like that person's terrible. Um, like it's just like this, this normal kind of uh, uh, reaction to these things. So, I mean, I don't know what y'all are giving advice to your students, but that's what we're trying to help our students do. Is like, <clears throat> let's create some structure, let's create some predictability. But then like, I intentionally tell my students like, you've got to stop working at a certain point during mm -hmm. the day. Like, because otherwise you can just go on and on and on. And I don't think that's tied to just the pandemic. I actually think that's just the nature of our jobs. If you want to work 24 seven, you could have done that before COVID um, and develop some kind of uh, unhealthy habits around that. <laughs> yeah, I think you said a lot of really important things there. Um, one of the things I liked is this idea of finding what works for you, right? Because people have different values and different preferences. What I heard that students say is that they really do value the connection to people who are working on the same things they're working on and going through the same things mm -hmm. they're going through. And I relate to that. I mean, I, I also am very extroverted and I get a lot of value out of talking about my work with my friends and having those be the same people. Um, I, I have one concrete suggestion that might be worth trying. So when I was in graduate school, we had what we called draft parties. Um, and the goal of the party was to read each other's drafts and then also drink beer because we are very punny. And so we would drink these beers, draft oh, beers, and read it. each other's drafts. <laughs> Um, and I thought, thank you for laughing, because I thought that was hilarious. I definitely came up with that. Anyway, and uh, that might be, so if, you know, if you're having a hard time getting people to agree to like a Zoom happy hour, which I agree is really kind of a drag sometimes, um, giving the meeting some kind of purpose, but still making it fun, it can be really helpful. And then you get the benefit of learning about what your friends are working on and giving them concrete advice. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's just helpful to have a, a justification for meeting instead of it being an extra thing you have to add on to what you're already doing. Yeah, I wonder if some of it too, like I feel like people are just zoomed out, right? So I think it's hard when you say like, I wanna do a Zoom happy hour. I think people are like literally anything but that. Um, I actually was on a happy hour with some faculty a few weeks ago and I believe the platform they used was called Gatherly. And it was really interesting mm -hmm. because it's like a virtual space where you can see people mingling at like different tables. You can like create different tables mm -hmm. and you can actually walk around the room. Um, and it kind of created this fun, organic feel to realize like, oh, I haven't chatted to this per with this person in a while. I'm going to go talk to them yeah. um, versus like breakout rooms and, and things that I think might just make people feel like it's a little more artificial than it needs yeah. to be. That's, we're yeah. going to be trying out something like that for yeah. PSYOP, right? So the virtual chair platform yeah. that we're using is really similar in concept. If, you're, if your little avatar is closer to somebody else, then your microphone gets yeah. louder and you have that conversation. Um, in fact, I think we're demoing that at a future gig, right, Richard? Yeah, mm -hmm. probably should be next week. We'll have more details later. Um, yeah, I, yeah. The, the, the shift in setting alone is a really interesting one. As I, I, I think of the almost stereotypical work party versus like going out with colleagues to a bar. And even if you're doing the same thing in those two contexts, there's a very mental, it's almost like commuting, like it's a very, a very big shift where, uh, you know, e even sitting on somebody's porch and drinking seals 
enormously different than sitting in a Zoom call and doing that. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that is due to just, it's just a new like place. Like you're in a new place, you're kind of a new thing together and experiencing a new thing in a new place. And when you just go Zoom to Zoom, like it's just more work in some ways. Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, I've noticed that all of our suggestions involve drinking and I would <laughs> not like to uh, yeah. <laughs> sort of imply that. I was coffee for the record. I was like, you can have some caffeine or like a decaf if that's your job. <laughs> but you can also go for a bike ride. I mean, the nice thing about the weather getting nicer is now that there are things you can do outside um, together. And again, I think if the gathering has a purpose, yeah. it's easier for people to justify it, um, especially if they're feeling stressed and burned out and like they have to justify every minute that they spend on things which you know I think we all are guilty of feeling that way but if it's some sort of activity that has another benefit great even going to the grocery store together could be something that is you know beneficial to people yeah, yeah. but I feel like some of these things like I said I, I do think even pandemic aside there sometimes it is hard just to make connections when people feel like they have to be working 24 7 and I just think you know one of the worst parts of our job is just like the ease of social comparison. I feel like I talk about that a ton, um, particularly when you're around other students, like you might feel like, oh, I have to be working all the time. But I think creating, you know, some structure, finding somebody else who identifies similarly of like exercising or whatever that outlet is for you and trying to connect over that, that's so incredibly helpful. Um, you know, I love it when I see our students like going to the gym together or like just going to walk on campus, for instance, and just taking that time, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. how, how much do you think the um, the grad student sort of almost hybrid status as partly student, partly university employee, like affects this? Uh, I, I, it feels like a very, I remember it being kind of a difficult line to walk at times. And I'm, I'm wondering how that's been amplified by the pandemic. Yeah, I wonder if it almost makes them feel you know, when, when we're in like normal session, right? Like if, if the pandemic hadn't happened and it was normal, we always talk to our students, like they're pseudo faculty members, like they're our colleagues, they're, you know, they're teaching, they are doing research with us. It's very integrated there. We really try to break down a lot of status. I do worry that because of the pandemic, there's been more hierarchy created because the faculty have become less accessible, mm -hmm. right? Like unless you see us in a zoom meeting or, or you schedule a meeting with us, um, you know, I think it can kind of create more of these status differences and make things feel a little bit worse than they would normally feel. Um, even, I mean, even with peers, I mean, I think about how yeah. many times it would, like in grad school would be in a class and I was like, I'm only half got what we just talked about. And then there was like that commiseration time with, with, yeah. with your peers. And then like, maybe that leads into like going and and complaining when behind door of a closed office or, or some other event, like whatever it was. But it was it was a bonding opportunity that yeah. is just gone in Zoom. I, I it's impossible to really facilitate that same kind of interaction. Yeah, well, my students never need to complain about me. I don't know what you're doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say my my classes are pretty flawless. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're totally right. Right, so much of communication is informal and unstructured, and we only have formal communication now. So everything feels like Ali said, more hierarchical, but there's also fewer opportunities to clarify things that you might not have understood. Um, and, and all that's gonna just slow down the learning process and put you more in a, like a, a student mode instead of a, a junior researcher mode, mm. because it takes away that, um, that ability to self-explore. You really sort of need yeah. the structure that other people give you. And sense make right and figure out like one of the things I'm sad about is like whenever we would have speakers in person and I know we're kind of like 
deviating around right now, but like we would, after a speaker would come through, I would always like huddle my graduate students and, or like any students, we would try to debrief about it and we would talk about it and they would hear us be like, you know, oh, like, I don't like, I really like this part of the paper, but I didn't get this. And I, I think they're not, the students aren't going to get to see that as much, right? That sometimes we're exposed to things and like, we don't get it or agree or, or we're processing it too. Um, and they're not getting to see all of that with their peers or with us. Like that's something I'm super, particularly for like first year students right now, like what a weird time to be coming in as a first year doctoral student where you want to be in that rich, like interpersonal environment, just like bantering and, and collaborating and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's going to be a weird, almost lost generation, because at least here we're going back to more or less in-person, I mean, pending the vaccine, doing what we think the vaccine is going to do. So yeah. More or less back to normal, maybe less in-person social interaction than there would have been, but still there's there's at least that dimension to it. But there's a a single cohort, which has just, mm -hmm. just completely destroyed their first year experience in a way that I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the long-term implications of that will be. Well, that's a little fatalistic. I mean, you know, this year was terrible, but there's next year. And so some of the things that didn't happen this year will happen next year for people. I'm not so, I mean, it's not like um, there's only one particular developmental period in life when you can be a graduate student and have that experience. I think it's not optimal, of course, but yeah. it will happen next yeah. year. It's definitely going to be different, though. Like the, the first year bonding experience, at least, seems to be a very common thread for a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, the the trial by fire year and and going through that together in a very uh, close interpersonal kind of way. So and yeah, I just I, I there will be consequences of that. I, yeah, I don't mean to I don't mean to say that like their experience is ruined or anything, but it will it will definitely color the rest of their experience in a way that no other cohort has really ever right. previously experienced, at least in living memory, uh, mm -hmm. or like or hopefully will anytime soon. Yeah. But think of all the bonding they can do later when they can talk about that unique experience that they've yeah. had that no one else has had, right? So and I've thought about this a lot. You know, I also moved to a new place mid-pandemic and have started, you know, a new job in a very strange way. And it isn't optimal. But on the other hand, the other people I know who have also done that, we feel very closely bonded because yeah. no one else can understand that commiseration experience quite like we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe one, hopefully one bright side of the pandemic, <laughs> if there is one, um, is I'm hoping people have become more open to like connecting virtually. Um, and so one thing that like I've been trying to do with my, so I'm teaching our human resources like overview PhD seminar right now. And one thing I've been trying to do to make up for the loss of like connection that you might get at conferences or things like that is every week we have a lead author of one of the articles coming into our class. Um, so today, like Jason Dolling came in and that was awesome because he got to connect with the students and they got to feel some of what they hopefully would have felt like at a PSYOP um, or for like business school students like or at an academy of management. Um, and I don't know, I mean, Jason is a wonderful human, so like I'm sure he would have come and helped me any year. But I think because of the pandemic, like I've been able to like week after week after week find somebody to give 30 minutes to an hour of their time to come talk to students and interact and engage them. Um, and I know I find myself doing way more things like this or other things that I maybe wouldn't have done if there was like in-person travel required or other stuff. So maybe there'll be some newer connections made outside of the prototypical ones because people are more yeah. willing to be flexible and talk virtually now than they were before right just to clarify you would have done this just not the other stuff yeah, yeah. i would have done this yeah, yes. <laughs> 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 
So let's let's try uh, diving into the the second question. Um, so let me let me read this one aloud. Also, um, before the pandemic, I was living with another grad student. During the pandemic, managing two full schedules from home wasn't an easy task, and my roommate decided to live alone last minute. I picked up a second job that I'm not really allowed to have, and now I work in a place that doesn't enforce masks so that I can afford to pay rent. Grad school assistantship stipend doesn't pay enough to live alone, and moving in with someone new in the middle of a pandemic with little notice wasn't an option. But I shouldn't talk about it because grad students aren't allowed to have additional income. Uh, thankful for a job that moved online smoothly, but sending empathy to grad students stressing about money right now and wishing for systems that allowed for more socioeconomic diversity. Uh, that's And that's echoing a little bit of uh, that thought I had before of uh, employee versus student. It's like in an, I in an ideal world, this wouldn't even be possible. This would not be a situation that could occur, yet um, we often do end up forcing students into this, uh, this sort of challenge where they, in order to live at a reasonable standard, they have to do things that uh, they are not happy doing. Uh, I don't know. What, what can we do about that? <laughs> this is a really serious issue that I think about a lot. You know, I, doctoral education shouldn't be a privilege of the wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. This should be that anyone who has the talent and motivation to put themselves through an experience like this should be able to do it without worrying about money. But, um, you know, at the same time, I recognize that graduate stipends are not uh, very luxurious for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, when I was in graduate school, I took out student loans to supplement my assistantship because there wasn't really another option to me. Um, that's not even a, an option that some people have. So uh, I really sympathize. And I guess the other thing I would say is that the model, like the model that we all agree on is that there's some short term suffering or hardship that, you know, pays off in the long term and in, in, in the form of increased salary and, and opportunities. But um, if that for some reason ever breaks, then I don't think we can really assume we can we can't ask people to assume that risk anymore. I mean, so far, it still is still the case, but it might not be forever. Yeah. Well, I think the part that's distressing there, right, is like the the person saying, I can't talk about this to anybody, right? Like, I can't go to anybody to tell them about this. Um, and that's hard because, like, yeah, I'm sure if that person went potentially, I mean, I don't know who it is, so I don't know who the advisor is, but if you go to the advisor and say, this is what I'm having to do, you hope that the response is going to be apathetic and like, I can't believe you're having to go through this. I'm so sorry. Like, what can we do? Or it could be the opposite, which is you need to quit that job and you can't be doing that. And then what are you telling that student? Like, no, like just kind of suffer and live on what you have. So I think there are a lot of these issues that we just don't talk about. Like we all know they exist, right? Because we all lived that life of that stipend and what that looked like. Um, but we don't allow students to really talk about it very, very openly. Um, so yeah, like this, I wish there was like this magic. I, I saw this question. And I was like, I wish there's like this magic answer. I could be like, this is the, what you do to solve this. But I think some of it is just like open dialogue with like, what are we doing with our training? Um, and how, what other options are available to us? Like, you know, rather than taking a random job, like I would love to see that student, especially if they want to go apply, like, can they get a job that's going to suit them for that? Like, can we help people find alternative sources of income? realizing that a stipend of, you know, 10, 11, $12,000 isn't going to cut it, especially if you're in a major city, um, and make that secondary employment not, I mean, I know this is getting tied up in like contracts and stuff, but make that secondary employment serve that person well. Um, like that's something I think about all the time. 
but yeah, but I, you know, these are where I'm like, I get these contracts and I'm like, I don't know, like, yes, I guess this is what we have, but. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I found myself in an awkward position a few times because what I want to tell a student and what I want to coach them to ad advise them to do is very explicitly counterindicated by the specific rules and regulations right. of the university. It's that employment line again. And I've, yeah. I've, I've generally tried to take a, a strategy of, well, let's talk about a hypothetical student at a identical university that is not ours and see what that student might do. And that that at least I feel gives me enough detachment to, to have an honest, open conversation with those uh, with those folks. Um, but it's it's that, yeah, that dual role of being both uh, an advisor and a supervisor that it becomes yeah. very difficult even from from the faculty side. Like, how do you how do you actually give honest advice, like human advice to a student, knowing that there are all these other higher level implications of what what they might choose to do? Right. And there's some advice that I give out that I know people won't take and I have to give it out anyway. Um, for example, I tell all of my students, don't try to work full time when you're finishing your dissertation because okay. it will take you years don't and years. <laughs> yeah. And no one ever believes me. And then it takes years and years. Um, but that's the trade off that they decided to make. Right. I mean, they might have families that they're supporting or like Ali said, they might be living in a major city where there isn't really another option. I mean, the purpose of an assistantship stipend is to give you the time and the space to focus on your studies. But if it isn't if it isn't doing that, if it's causing a stress, you know, then a full time job is the is the alternative. Um, and then you sort of accept that you're going to be in graduate school for a lot longer than you thought you were. Mm hmm. We also, you know, a lot of that feels like it's gotten worse over the last maybe couple decades <laughs> uh, is in, I feel like now to, if you have, if, for example, if you do an internship and, and then a student gets, says that employer is like, oh, hey, we have a position open right now. You should just transition straight into it. And their dissertation stage, like economically, I would, I have a hard time telling a student at that point, ah, there'll be more opportunities later, you'll be fine. Cause we don't, yeah. we don't live in a world with that kind of security anymore. Like if you have an open offer and you like it and it's somewhere you want to live and it's something you want to do, you should probably take it. Uh, even mm -hmm. knowing the sacrifices on a dissertation, dissertation completion time that will create. Uh, and I feel weird giving that advice at the time, but yeah. I'm like, if I were you, I would just do it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like we see that too on the for people who want to go the academic route, right? Like we oh, had yeah. some students where it's like, oh, you could do like a visiting for a year while you finish up, and then that's going to turn into the full time gig, and you're like, oh, that's risky, like because you're going to have to probably teach and do all these things and try to still do a dissertation, but then you're like, we know how competitive the academic job market is, so then how in good faith do you tell that student like? Yeah, no, don't do that. Like, don't try to <laughs> stack the odds a little bit in your favor. Um, and, and yeah, so something I like, I always try to have check-ins with my students of like, what are your goals? What are your goals? What are we trying to accomplish here? So that way, when we get to these crossroads kind of conversations, there's a history, right, of these are the things that you're trying to do. And here are all the ways we could then serve that. Um, but if if we don't know that, this is what I always tell my students, like, if I don't know how you're feeling about something, I, I can't help you. Like, I have to know. And I take silence as just like status quo, like things are just happening. Um, but yeah, I think we right. already turned on ourselves like we were all students. <laughs> so when we hear and we all like made choices that were probably questionable at the time. <laughs> 
Um, and how would it have felt if we had had, like, I feel lucky that I had a faculty member who I can go to when I was contemplating a lot of like big choices and decisions, but I know not everybody has that. Yeah. Um, and it would be nice if we had more people in the programs who are open to all of those hard conversations. Um, but that's like a that that's a big shift that we need some people to make. So right, there are always choices, there are always trade-offs, and a good advisor can help you think about what they might be, but they can't make the decision for you, right? They can just tell you what you're giving up by pursuing some opportunity, and and you can't have it all, right? Unfortunately, and so when you make those choices, you just hope they're informed choices. But you know, if somebody here uh, listening doesn't have an advisor that can give them good advice, I think um, we can all just call Richard. He offered to give us all advice. Yeah, twenty four seven. He said he was going to give his cell phone number out on the That's air. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I will say that this problem is part of the motivation for this show. I mean, to be able to connect with students who uh, and people, you know, early career professionals or anybody that that doesn't feel like they have a support network to get this kind of advice. I mean, it's part of why we wanted to do this. So, um, to the extent to the extent that I can be, I don't know about cell phone numbers, but to the extent that I. I can be a resource. I'm I'm happy to, and I do. St I actually I get random like uh, because I have this uh, the website with um, advice on how to get into IO grad school, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> which seems to be pretty popular. Uh, the I I get random emails from people with just like asking for advice, and you know totally happy to just shoot back an email to you. That's five minutes out of my day and can help you a lot. Yeah, totally fine with that. I'll put his phone number in the Discord. Don't worry. <laughs> <everyone. laughs> Put it right on Twitter. Like I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, we're we're running we're running a little long, but I want to get back to the get to this last uh, big uh, story at least that we can talk about a little bit. And as a reminder, we've got we've got a little over a dozen folks on the uh, uh, on the live show right now, and a few more coming in and out. Uh, so if uh, as a reminder, we are we only have like a 10 second delay to the live show. If you have questions or things you want to talk about either in this half or the second half, please uh, go ahead and share them there or in the Discord. Um, but here's our story number three. I'm a first year grad student. I have not said that sentence in a long time. I have yet to attend an in-person class or meet most of my cohort. Uh, here are thoughts and observations I wish I could share more openly. We study work-life balance and have horrible work-life balance ourselves, both on the academic and applied side. Why? I hate publish or perish. Every PSYOP social media post about one of the fellows for this year that I've seen highlights the number of publications they have. I don't care. What's the actual impact? Why focus on quantity over quality? We need to face the fact that our work gets corrupted all the time. Organizations can and do misuse IO findings to hurt workers. We should call it out. Science and advocacy can't be completely separate when the science is applied to uneven power situations like employment. Plus, there is so much wrong with work right now beyond bad testing documentaries. Where is PSYOP in the minimum wage debate or Amazon union efforts? These things seem relevant to us. Uh, so this is a, a little bit broader set of uh, almost existential concerns, uh, ones ones which I have certainly struggled with. Uh, how about... Yeah, those uh, are like field-level concerns. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe... I just want to say I cannot believe that the person who wrote those comments is still only a first-year graduate student. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that, you know, that mm -hmm. Richard and I, we talk about all the time. And, um, you know, like Ali said, these are the big questions facing our field. So... Uh, whoever wrote that comment, I anticipate a bright career for you ahead, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing your papers, uh, truly. Uh, and everything you said is is completely correct. We, you know, I wouldn't take issue with any of it. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, there's you can't say like no, you're wrong. 
I mean, I think some of it is hard. Like, I think the, you know, where where the IO psychologists that are publishing research on like these practical issues, I think there are things pretty ingrained and in, like, and I'm not using this as an excuse, but I think they're just facts, right? I think there are things ingrained in our publication process of like, how are we evaluating contribution? Um, you know, I'm only in AE at JP for a few months now, but like one of the first boxes is like contribution. It can be theoretical and all this stuff. And I think sometimes we still have these knee jerk reactions when people are trying to publish things that are so practically oriented where it's like, we know this is a problem. This is my question. I want to study it. And then they submit it and they get blown up. Someone will be like, well, where's the theory though, right? There's no theory, there's no theory, there's no theory. Um, and I've seen this happen in some of the work like that we're doing on things like pregnancy and breastfeeding and women's health issues where they're like, this is really important, but you didn't solve a theoretical issue. And I'm like, no kidding, because we're talking about like support practices for breastfeeding. Like there is no theory of breastfeeding support practices. So we're just trying to understand this very practically oriented issue. And so I think some of the things the student is pointing out very accurately have to also do with like a fundamental shift of what we view and value as a contribution. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons when Lillian uh, Evie approached me to be an A at JP, and I was like five months postpartum and like exhausted and <laughs> like, I'm not managing my time well, but you know what I should do? I should sign on for a six year commitment uh, to this journal. Um, but one of the reasons why I did it was because she very sweetly said like, look, you will be able to have a voice and to shape research on this particular issue that you care about or issues that you care about. And I think we need to have a, a broader view of what like, this is just like a longer ramp. I think we need a broader view of like what success means in the field. It's not just like the number of A's or the number of publications, but what are you trying to do with that information? And then what are you trying to meaningfully change practically in people's lives? Um, I hope we do more of that, but I, I do think there are things that are just so baked into the publication process or the processes for like how we choose career awards and fellows where it is like, productivity compared to a cohort. And so how do we measure productivity? We count, right? <laughs> like that's, that's the quickest way you can do something like that. And I'm not saying that's the right way to do it, but I think that's what ends up happening kind of repeatedly over time. Yeah, that's the the old expression, deans can count, right? Uh, yeah. Evaluating promotion and everything else. And and to be fair, especially when you're evaluating across disciplinary lines, it's an even it's an even harder problem. Yeah. You know, what's, what's insidious about it for me is that it's it's still it's us like we are we are both creating contributing to and and in the system that that makes this problem uh and and tara and i have discussed this in many times and it's also reflected in some of our uh in some of our writing that uh if you know if somehow we managed to get the whole field to just agree to stop paying attention to this all at once it would no longer be a problem. <laughs> but the problem right. is you, you do have invested actors that have bought fully into that system uh, mm -hmm. and, are, and are more than happy to just churn stuff out because they get rewarded for it and they know how to do it and they're perfectly happy to just keep being rewarded for it. So why would they change now? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, yeah, I, I and I, I fully agree this is a student wise beyond their years. Uh, <laughs> uh, Although I'm, I'm upset, I'm sad for them. So I'm like, oh. yeah. You've got a lifetime of frustration ahead of you. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I think things, things are changing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I hope it's changing. Like, I know that's something that I've been trying to really actively push back on. It's like, no, like, we don't need to reject papers because you didn't create a new theory. Like, we don't need any more, right? We need to study things that are really timely and topical and important. And if there's a theory that informed that, 
great, but if you're telling me that you need to do like a qualitative study to understand this, and then you tested some of that, awesome. Like, I, I think we just need to view, this is my like post tenure, like shift of like, we need to identify like multiple routes to success and have a broader discussion of what success means in the field. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that as soon as you offer a definition for what success looks like, people will change their behavior and aim it at that target. And this, you know, the the status quo problem that we're describing was a side effect of someone trying to solve a different problem a generation ago, right? They were like, wow, these papers really don't have any theory behind them. We can't accumulate our science. This isn't useful. So now let's start, you know, emphasizing the contribution of theory. And then everyone's like, theory, you got it. No problem. I'm now offering the theory of breastfeeding. Uh, right? And so, so now we're overreacting, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of trying to solve a different problem. So yes, people can count. And if we start saying, well, we're not going to count your papers anymore. We're going to look at the quality of the paper. We're going to look at the journal ranking. We're going to look at whether you're the first author. Then people will just game all those metrics too. This is fundamentally not a solvable problem, but I do agree that things are going in the right direction in that we are better suited as a field to celebrate different kinds of success. And I see the evidence of that everywhere I look. So I'm optimistic and I, and I think there's a, there's an audience for some of the sentiments that the student raised and, and I'm, I'm not sad for them. I think it'll be, it'll be better than it was for, for any of us. I think. Not a, not a solvable problem is such an interesting. You heard me. Not a solvable problem. So what if we only, <laughs> what if we only rewarded magnum opuses? This is a thought experiment. Like if you, we reward having one paper that is enormously impactful and whatever your one most impactful thing per decade is, that's right. how we, how we th think of mm -hmm. you. What would that do? Well, so sure. It would, it would <laughs> ask people to start putting energy into magnum opi, opuses, oh, yeah. op op sure. opitopes, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's assume a case where nobody creates a magnum opus. Now there's no variability between people and we can't decide who to choose for or whatever. Or mm. if everyone creates a magnum opus, how do you decide which one's better? You have to count something. Well, count the number of citations or count something else. But you cannot mm. get away from the problem of comparing people to each other by coming up with a better, more interesting metric. Ban metrics. It's a solution. We're done. Who you can do that. Like, <laughs> like if, if three people apply for a job yeah. and you have to compare them to each other, then you have to quantify that in some way, whether it's, you know, a good way, like what we're talking about or a bad way, but you have to quantify it or hire everybody. I mean, I guess you could just, you could hire everybody that applies. That would be the solution to the problem. Yeah. Everyone can have everything that they want. Who, who has the best work-life balance? I'll give you work-life balance points, and whoever has the most is the winner. Sure, sure. Who <laughs> has the best work-life balance? Gosh, <laughs> nobody get hired. We the field would be empty. We'd just leave. <laughs> who who can eat the most pie in an hour? That would be. Yeah. I would support that as a contest. Well, all right. So now now that we've solved all the problems with academia, I think it's time for a break. Uh, let's uh, let's take five minutes. And we will uh, we'll return for the, the interview portion uh, of our show. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Just kidding. We only have music. And we're back. Welcome, everybody. Uh, during the break, we had a, a question in the YouTube Live, which I want to just briefly touch on. 
Um, can you talk more about IS psychology's role in unionization? It seems like a societal issue studied by labor economists rather than IOs. Also has, um, uh, outside of the question, has a bit of a grad student unionization sort of dimension to it. Uh, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's true. The second part of what you said about the graduate student unionization question, I think, you know, the rules differ so much state by state that there's an obvious uh, research study for anyone who's interested in, in uh, unionization, right? They can sort of look at how that plays out for graduate students in those different states. Um, as far as the broader question, and I'm really glad that someone asked that because I, I think it is a, an understudied topic. It's a sort of tricky one, right? Because it is, is very emotionally laden. Um, on, on one side, there's this human rights dynamic um, to collective bargaining, um, which becomes especially important in an environment where we've got like the Ubers, the Ubers and the, you know, the gig workers who just really do clearly need worker protections, right? So there's a clear argument for collective bargaining. On the other side, there are lots of people who would say that unions have passed their usefulness and we don't need them anymore. So it's just, this, you know, it, it brings out passions in people, which could make it a really interesting thing to study or a tricky one, right? Depending on what your appetite is for risk and conflict. Um, so uh, maybe, you know, maybe not the first research question you pick up as a new graduate student, but certainly keep that in mind if you're if you're interested in those topics. And um, I am seeing some papers come out that are sort of dipping their toe into that question, right? Through a gig work lens or through a management relations lens. But our history as IO psychologists was actually quite involved with labor relations. And you can see that like yeah. Cornell's you know, OBHR program is in the School of Industrial Labor Relations. There used to be other schools of industrial and labor relations that contained IO psychologists. And that has sort of changed over time. There's no reason it can't change back again. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is um, this question is also building a little bit on that last uh, question that we were asked before the break um, about why why is Psyopnet taking more stances on all of these kinds of issues, including unions. And it's you know I I, I think it's important to realize that we have we do have a lot of diversity in opinion and stance mm -hmm. with Psyop. Uh, and trying to uh, reach agreement on these issues. I mean, if even even the few behind the scenes sort of, I, I've witnessed the creation of those psyop stances a couple times, and uh, it is sometimes contentious even among like ten people trying to come to an agreement on exactly what psyop stance should be on something. Trying to do that in unions, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. Gosh. Well, sure. Put ten academics in a room. I mean, you'll get ten. 10 very passionately argued um, opinions about which direction to take. But <laughs> there's a difference between SIOP as an organization that has to stay neutral yeah. and SIOP as a collection of individuals who are under no such obligation and can do whatever they want as researchers. So, um, you know, instead of letting the, like the field, whatever the field means, do mm. something, just do it. You know, if it's something that's interesting to you. <laughs> so speaking of empowering individuals, segue, uh, let's move into the interview so portion of our uh of our uh, a show here segue if you say segue like oh yeah it's, it totally it's is gonna it's gonna it's gonna eventually devolve into just me saying segue that will be how this goes one day <laughs> uh so yeah i have a we have a set of uh, interview questions I, I would love to get your your response to so um let me let me start by saying um you know we invited you here ali to to discuss you know our grad student lament, uh, in part because you're coming to us with a lot of ex expertise and experience in occupational health and 
you know, we talked a little bit about how that difference between students as students and students as employees can can potentially have some of those dimensions, those occupational health kind of dimensions too. Um, what is, I mean, what's currently exciting about occupational health for you? Like, what's the next big area of focus? Where what are you going into? I, I imagine the pandemic has really opened up a lot of questions. I would assume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's blown it open. Uh, <laughs> and you know, so the pandemic hit whilst we had our baby on March 10th, um, which is those of you who are tracking pandemic dates. It was like the day before the pandemic got declared. <laughs> so we had our baby. I went on parental leave. And then when I came back, I came back and everybody's talking about like COVID JP data and COVID call and COVID call and COVID research. And I remember distinctly having this conversation with um, Chris Rosen, this good friend and collaborator of mine, being like, there's no way I'm doing COVID research stress me out. I don't want to do like, love my job. I don't want COVID stuff to come into my job because I'm, I'm sick of talking about it and hearing about it. It's really, I have a lot of anxiety. So it was like feeding all my anxiety. And now here I am doing all this COVID related research. Um, and I think one of the things that we, from an occupational health standpoint, I'm trying to understand is how um, the kind of complex emotional reactions people are having to decisions about their livelihoods at work. So things like organizational reentry, how are people emotionally reacting to their companies requiring them to come back face to face? Maybe if they weren't part of that decision making process. Um, I'm working on that research with uh, Gerald Slaughter, who's one of my colleagues here, and then two of our doctoral students, um, Mahira Ganster and Rebecca McGowan. Um, and that's been really, really eye opening because I think with the pandemic and, you know, we, to disclose like we went hardcore on the lockdowns. Like we still really, we're vaccinated, but we still don't leave very often. Um, and so I assumed that everybody would have that lens of like, oh, my emotions are really complex about this. I'm really scared. I don't want to go back to work. And then we started serving people and they're like, no, like I'm grateful to go back to work. Like I need social connection. I need to see people again. I'm willing to accrue that risk if it means I can see other people. Mm. Um, so as an emotions and a health researcher, that's been really fascinating to me. Um, so yeah, so instead of having to do COVID research now, here I am. The other piece that I'm really passionate about, and I mentioned this before the break, is just research related to women's health. Um, so it started with interest in and this was before Eleanor, before we had a baby, but interest in supporting breastfeeding and women returning to work postpartum. Um, I feel like that was one of those work family issues that clearly existed. Um, and there was some work on it, but nobody was really talking about the women's perspectives and their experiences. Um, so that study, I'm, I'm super proud of the work we did there. Um, more recently, though, we're starting to dive into... Uh, if it's possible, like even more kind of taboo or issues that you don't want to hear or people aren't comfortable talking about, like issues of postpartum depression and how that comes back into the workplace. Um, so I'm a big me search person as somebody who just had a baby in a pandemic. I've had my own issues with kind of postpartum mental health and depression. And so to help me make sense of that, I was like, maybe I should study it. And so that's where we are right now. And, you know, to some of the questions that the students were bringing up before the break, I think the more... We have people tackle these real world issues and talk about them and highlight the struggles and the challenges that employees are facing, pandemic or otherwise. That's how we build momentum and change things in the field. That's how we get people to kind of say, you know what, we could do something more powerful here. We don't need another, you know, moderated mediation model, although I'm sure like I'll still have those. Right. But can we talk about some of these real world issues that people are really struggling with? Um, so that's probably the, the health related research that I'm most excited about and passionate about. We're just getting started. Um, and I'm excited to kind of bring those narratives to life with some of my colleagues that are, are doing that work. 
I really appreciate how you've got lots of different research areas that you're interested in and you're not worried about, you know, whether that is, you know, valued or not valued. I mean, speaking mm -hmm. of a fellow dabbler in different ideas, um, has that been difficult for you to, to kind of maintain multiple areas of expertise at once? It, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I think if you're more programmatic, right, the benefit of being like programmatic and like, this is my topic and this is what I do. And I, and I collaborate with people who are like that, that are so careful. There's benefits, right? Like you can whip out an intro to a paper then in like a morning because you're like, yep, I don't like when I write an emotional labor paper now, it feels like home, right? Because I'm just like, oh yeah, like I've been living in this research since, you know, 2008 when I first started, um, or even before that in 2004, oh gosh, I was like, when I started college in 2008, that was not true. It was 2004. I graduated in 2008. Um, but right. I just know it. Whereas anytime we pick up these new topic areas, there is that kind of, oh, I need to sit and really read and think about this, particularly when you're getting into some of these postpartum issues, we're going to like obstetrics journals, right? And reading about, you know, the, the medical components of disease or, or breastfeeding or things like that. Um, and so would I, would I do that pre-tenure? I probably, clearly I didn't. I started the breastfeeding research the second I like turned in my packet. <laughs> I was like, oh, nothing matters anymore. I'm good. Um, but I actually get a lot of energy from starting over and picking up a new topic and reading because I don't think we get to do that very much. Once you leave graduate school, you don't get to like just sit and read on a topic. Um, and so that always brings energy to then help me like serve my other areas. But hmm. yeah, I'm sure people would look at some of my CV and be like, how did you get there? Like, how did you get from here? all the way over to what you just said. And yeah, it's not this cute linear trajectory. It's kind of all over and grounded in this happened to me. This happened to a friend. I feel really strongly about using my voice to kind of amplify that story. Um, and let's do that. Like why I don't need to do anything else. So, <laughs> so did, did you feel a lot of pressure uh, pre-tenure to, to stay within like a particular lane or how, how much do you feel like you pushed against that or like, how did how did you manage it? That's a good question. I don't, so I guess, can, did I feel pressure here, like at Arizona? No. Um, and that was, you know, one of the things I love so much about this department is we are a interdisciplinary group. This is like a weird pitch now for, you know, comes <laughs> to the Department of Management and Organizations at the University of Arizona. Um, but we are like a very interdisciplinary group. So you have me, you have a bunch of IO psychologists here, like Alex Ellis and Gerald Slaughter. Um, you have people who are very methodsy, you have sociologists, you have social psychologists, you have people who dabble in economics. So for me, um, you know, the support I felt here was, you know, do research that you're proud of, that you're passionate about, mm. um, and that you can involve doctoral students with. So I think some of these tangents that people see me taking, like all of the work I do on recovery, that's to the credit of Andrew Bennett, who was my doctoral student when I was on faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, he came to me uh, wanting to do recovery for his dissertation work. I had this interest in doing recovery research, but I'd never done it. And so he really kind of pushed me into that direction. And so if it wasn't for him, I would not do this whole big area. Um, and so the doctoral students, when they come to me with these ideas, that's really what's driven some of these kind of deviations. Um, did it affect perceptions of me like outside of Arizona? Maybe. I'm sure there are people that probably don't like <laughs> what my CV looks like. Or like can't make sense of it, right? Because it's not... Um, for the students that are listening, you know, it's really common in job market talks to see like this Venn diagram, like 
here's area one, here's area two, here's where they overlap. And that's where my dissertation is. Like, I don't have that. I have like paint splats, like on a screen, like here's stuff I do. That's the one I'm talking about today. And I move on. Um, and there's there's pros and cons to that. Um, hmm. But I never felt any pressure here. I felt like hmm. I've been able to really thrive here um, because there was none of that pressure. It was like, yep, just do good work and be happy. So and go it, home. <laughs> and take a, like truly, like my Gerald Slaughter was chair when I started here. And like, if he saw me in the office late, he'd be like, go home. Like, what are you doing? It's nice out. Like, go, like, go. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. Like. <laughs> Someone's telling me to go home in a very nice, helpful way. <laughs> so, so you've you've mentioned a few a few names. Let me let me let me read a extended list of those. So, you, I heard Rosen in there. I I, I also uh, the names Koopman, uh, Diefendorf, uh, Chavla. I think it is or Chavla, uh, mm -hmm. Calderwood, Johnson. You said Bennett also. Is is this is are you in a gang? Who is who I are these people? Yeah, it's super secret society. We you know um, you just named a collection of my advice. So Jim Diefendorf is my advisor. Um, mm. But then some of those are my students. So Nithya Chava was my doctoral student here. Uh, Andrew, uh, who's now like kicking butt at um, Texas A&M in their department mm. of management there. Um, Andrew Bennett was my doctoral student at VCU. Um, and then Chris Rosen, Russ Johnson, fellow Zips uh, from Akron, um, and Charles Calderwood, also met at VCU. You're probably noticing a theme. Like, I I like to build a big network of people. Um, but honestly, what I the names you just described are all so important, and I could list other people that could fit in there, too, because when I'm picking, you know, a question I often get, maybe this is related, is like, how do you pick co-authors? Or like, who are you doing work with? Or why are you doing work? Like the people you all named are just like the goodest of humans. Um, and I work with them because they're brilliant and they're smart, but they're also really kind and understanding. Um, they're people who, you know, when I went on parental leave, there was none of this discussion of like, oh, like that's gonna interrupt this paper. It's gonna interrupt this thing you're about to do. It was more of a, you go, take as much time as you want and like you tell us what we need to do to support you. Um, and so when it comes to picking co-authors, I really feel fortunate that I've been able to surround myself with people who value me in that way, that I can be like my full authentic self. They all knew the challenges I was having coming back um, from leave. So yeah, um, and my doctoral students are just like everything to me. Like I wouldn't do this job without them. Um, I credit a lot of my success to my doctoral students because they just make me better because um, they make me have to rise to the occasion to meet them where they are. Um, and then I get to just like go along for the ride with them and just cheer them on. So that's been great. But no gang, although I do think we would make awesome. You mentioned a lot of men on there. Like I would love to make like bedazzled jackets now, like jean jackets with like a lot of bedazzling on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, every gang needs a rival gang, though. So you're gonna have to start thinking about who your who your enemies would be. I know it's gonna be tough for you. Who am I? Yeah. I'm such a <laughs> No, that would be hilarious. <laughs> rival gang. It could be a dance war. You know, no violence. We're not condoning violence here. Just no, no violence. It would just be like a nerd fest. Um, but that's fine. That's like what our jobs are. <laughs> so yeah. So we've got. 
we've got a year. You see, I'm 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 organizing the program for Psyop in Seattle, and we'll have a dance off. And you should just I'm know in. now. Yeah, you'll have we'll have to figure out who the rival is, though. That yeah, we'll have to work that out ahead of time. Definitely Russ Johnson. He'll I'm going to separate him from my gang. He's going to start his own. I want to see him at a dance oh. off. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, Russ Johnson. You are fired from gang. Listening, <laughs> it is freaking on. <laughs> So let, let's um let's keep let's keep moving. I've got uh you mentioned a lot about your uh your kid um who by the way only two days off from from my birthday. I just throw that in there. Um, oh, fine. Ha having kids while in academia is a really fraught topic. Like a, a lot of very strong opinions about it. Uh, a lot of people are really nervous. You get there's a lot of really well intentioned advice about delaying until certain times and career stages and i don't know in, in many ways uh and, and much like one of the questions we got early on it seems like academia especially the idea of being a professional researcher almost seems to actively discourage a healthy work-life balance as it relates to children uh, i'm just wondering um how how what has your approach been especially coming at this from the perspective of, of knowing occupational health research you, it, have you engineered your own job to be less stressful is there any anything specifically one can do to make this easier do you do you like the the advice that you followed or didn't follow man it's so hard to say um so like uh, so you're right like I, I think our field is riddled with advice and really like capital o strong opinions on having kids in academia which is crazy. Like I cannot think of another profession where people are like, don't have a kid until you meet this arbitrary line in the sand. Like where, like when does that ever happen? <laughs> like it happened to any yeah. friends at any other job where they're like, I was told to wait six years to have my first child, <laughs> but whatever. Um, so I was given all that advice. Um, I, as someone who had a lot of anxiety pre-tenure, I listened to it because for my own, mm. knowing what I knew about my well-being, I was like, all right, I need to control what I can control. And right now I can control my tenure packet and my process. And I just worried of how I would feel. I didn't think I would be able to be the like mom and wife and caregiver I wanted to be pre-tenure. But that was my own thing. I don't give that advice to anybody else. I just stay very honestly, like, this is why I made that call. I knew I personally was not in a good spot. And again, remind you, like I'm in an incredibly supportive department. And so if I had done that, they would have been totally fine um, and really happy about it. Um, but I did listen, I got a lot of advice. Um, and so I thought we had hit the perfect time. Like I remember talking to like, oh, people say there's no perfect time to have a baby, but I did it. Like I totally did it. I have tenure, I'm good. Like there was a plan for me to go up for full and it was all here. And then I had a baby and a pandemic hit the next day. So like, uh, first of all, never say there's, <laughs> you've hit the right time because <laughs> you will be punished for saying that. Um, but I, I do think our field has a lot of strong opinions. So on my due date with Eleanor, I remember driving around Tucson with Mike in the car, super salty because I was still pregnant and this baby was not coming and I was done. Um, and I had found out that day that I won the HR division for Academy, the early career award, which is really, really exciting. Um, and so the word kind of slowly started leaking out after that. And somebody made a comment to me like, oh, you really nailed it. Like now your productivity can tank because you have a kid and there's no risk associated with it. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Like, 
I think there's a compliment in there, but I don't know where it is. But I think that's how our field views having kids. It's just like this yeah. bomb that explodes your productivity. And why does that happen? Because we don't have a lot of good support structures in play to allow people to come back and thrive in their work roles. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we totally missed the mark with how we view having kids in academia. I think we want careers to be, be these like, this is getting a little like soapboxy, but I think we want careers to be these like beautiful linear trajectories where there's no dips and there's no bumps. But that's not realistic. And then that and that just doesn't help people. And when they do have those bumps, right? Um, so yeah, if anybody would like to have conversations about kids and timing, I'm happy to, like you said, I, I, this is actually a conversation I have a lot now with people. Like they see me on Twitter, um, once in a while, I post a picture of Eleanor on there and I'll get a message from someone like, oh, like you're doing it all. And I'm like, no, I'm not like, actually, like this took a lot of hits <laughs> to get to this point. I'm sad we had to wait as long as we did because she's awesome most days. <laughs> or she doesn't nap, then she's a bit of a monster, but I love her. Um, but we have a ton of support here. Like I'm in a department that really supports this. Um, I have a spouse who had to go part time. We have family in town. Like there are things, there are things in my life that have allowed this to happen. Mm. Um, and I don't think we like to talk about that. I think we just like to think like, oh, you did this, that was fine, and now you're just you're just productive and you're publishing. But that's not realistic. I wish we had more realistic conversations of how things like actually look for people. <laughs> And we don't. Yeah, it, you know, it's related to, I think it was just, uh, I think I saw it today, there was a paper on, um, or, or maybe just a news story, but on wealth privilege in academia and what it enables. Like, if if you're going into, uh, if you're going into academia and you already have like, well, I can, you know, I have a, either a spouse that is very well earning or, or whatever else, and we can, ah, we can just get a nanny. You know, for a lot of people, yeah. that's like, if you get a nanny that kills 50% of your income as a, as a couple. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you also, if you already have those kind of like financial resources, it's a very different question. And that's not, it's not really fair uh, to put people in that situation. It's not, no. And again, it's kind of, it just creates, it just reinforces more and more and more and more and more. Like this is the only way to be successful. This is the only way careers can look. Mm. When again, like it's gonna like, who knows careers lag too, right? So I think like right now you could look at my, like somebody could be pulling up my CV right now and be like, this is garbage. Like your CV is fine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but you're, you're catching a lag, right? You're catching a lag of the six, seven years where we didn't have a kid. And all I was doing was working all the time. I can't tell you what it's going to look like in a few years after, you know, the the hit, so to speak, of a kid and a pandemic, and everything else. Like we, it's a miracle she hasn't come in here because we basically hot potato <laughs> her like 90% of the day of like, who's mm -hmm. going to hold it now? And so I've had, like I've written decision letters for JP with her hanging out on my lap. Like that's not, that's not normal. Like that should not be happening, but here we are. Um, so apologies to anybody who gets a one with a weird typo from me. <laughs> it was the baby. <laughs> the keyboard. So, so it kind of related to that is, is this how you had imagined things would go like life and career wise is, was this always the eventual trajectory and you just kind of wove your way back to it or, or have things taken unexpected turns? Is, is this, is this what your grad student self saw for yourself? Like, have you known for a long time? <laughs> um, I don't know what my grad school self saw for me. I don't, mm. You know, I, it's funny, I, I was speaking, so Alicia Grandy was my undergraduate advisor. She's like prolific at Penn State IO. I love her dearly. Um, 
I was in her seminar as a first year freshman student at Penn State called Psychology of Service with a Smile. Hmm. And I was taking it just to like fill um, a major requirement, right? I had to take a seminar and I just picked hers because I had had these random service jobs and I thought it was interesting. Um, and I was really at Penn State because I wanted to go to law school. Um, so if you would, if you can go back in time and ask like, what does freshman Allie think she's going to do? I thought I was going to law school. Um, and she put me in her research lab, which I didn't really understand what it meant. I was like, what do you mean a research lab? Like my friends were like pre-med and bio majors. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna like work with specimens. And instead I'm like transcribing like customer harassment incivility transcripts being like, what am I doing? Like, well, this is fascinating. Like people are a mess. Um, <laughs> and we are, it's called job security. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I kind of applied to doctoral programs to humor her. She was like, mm. I think you'd be really good at this. And I was like, no. So I applied to some thinking it was going to blow up. And I wouldn't get in. And then I would go to law school. And then Jim Diefendorf <laughs> admitted me to Akron. Um, and so, and even then, I don't think, like, do I think I would have been here in this moment where I am in these roles? No, absolutely not. Like, if you had told me, like, first year me, like, you're going to be nominated for this early career award. You're going to be an AE at this journal that you don't even understand how to publish it. Like as a freshman, I've been like, you're insane, but I don't know. Like part of it, I think is part of it's luck. Um, part of it is just working really, 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 really relentlessly hard and having the structure and support to do that. Like, I think you nailed it of just like having a spouse that was okay. I think, uh, <laughs> okay with the fact that I was just really 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 like churning as hard as I humanly could for like five or six years mm. and accepting of that I know that doesn't happen for everybody um but I think also the other part of it too is just that gang like just being able to to know good human beings who just want to do good work but yeah like this was beyond anything I think I could have ever imagined that we would be here. Certainly living in the desert, never thought that was going to happen. Um, <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> but here we are for that, too. Yeah. Um, and now we have a desert baby who, like, doesn't like grass. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, how, how do you, what? <laughs> how do you she know doesn't that? like grass. Like, she's just not used to it. So, like, we put her in this little patch of grass we have. And she just sits in it giving like a stank face. And we're like, but no, like kids like grass, like go. And she just sits there with her arms like this, like, don't make me touch it. Don't make me touch it. <laughs> like, wow. Do with that. Desert kids, they're just weird. At home in the rock garden though, just totally fine. <laughs> yeah, it's totally, yeah. yeah it's packed <laughs> in the scorpions and the other creatures that show. We had a bobcat that took up residence on our, our property for a little bit this summer. That was fun. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, you know, a bobcat could help me with my goose problem. That way. <laughs> I can ask my husband, Mike, about your goose problem. He's taken a birding. He counts. He's, like, very intense about it, too. He has, like, a checklist each day of birds he checks for. And I'm like, can you just make coffee instead? Like. <laughs> Well, That's I'm, how we're going to end this. On this happy geese-related note uh, and, and the promise of future bird information. Thank you so much uh, for coming <laughs> on the show, Allie. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I hope some of this was helpful. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
so that's it for gig number three. Uh, as always, please join our Discord so you can chat with us before, during, and after the show. Definitely hit that subscribe button in YouTube to get a notification next time we go live so you never miss a show. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time for another great IO get-together. Oh, the times were hard and the wages low. Leave a Johnny, leave a... I guess it's time for us to go. And it's time for us to leave her. Leave a Johnny, leave a... I can't believe it's already over, can you? To keep the excitement going, check out our website at thegig.online. Join our Discord community to chat with your hosts and your fellow giggers. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss a gig. Above all, thank you for joining us, and see you next time for another great I.O. get-together.